0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, your host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to two of the authors of the book, Your PhD Survival Guide, Planning, Writing, and Succeeding in Your Final Year, and my guests are Dr. Catherine First and Dr. Liam Connell. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us on. Yeah, thank you. I'm so glad that you're both here. And to start us off, I wonder if you will both please tell us about yourselves. Uh, Dr Firth, could we start with you, please?
2: Yes, thank you. My name is Dr Catherine Firth. I um, did my PhD in the United Kingdom. Uh, I now live in Melbourne, Australia. I was a contingent lecturer for a while. I was an academic skills advisor for a while. I've been a university manager uh, for a while. Occasionally, I'm an academic. Um, and so through all of these things, I've, um, and I also write books, uh, things like your PhD survival guide and other books like how to fix your academic writing
0: trouble, which is also for doctoral students.
1: And Dr. Connell, could you tell us a bit about yourself, please?
0: Yeah, sure. Thanks. Christina. So, uh, yep, yeah, my name is Dr. Liam Connell. Um, I'm also in Melbourne, Australia. Um, I have completed a PhD um, more than 10 years ago now, which is a bit frightening. Um, and uh, ever since then, I've been working in, in, in and out of universities, but primarily in universities in uh, research, education and training. Um, and I currently, I've been academic before and I uh, currently work in, um, research and development at uh, another university. But I was at uh, University of Melbourne where I completed my PhD and that's where Catherine and I met um, when I when she was working in academic skills development and I was at the Melbourne School of Graduate Research, which is kind of how all of this got started, I suppose.
2: Well, this is, of course, where the third author of the book, uh, who couldn't make it today, Dr Peter Freestone, currently an academic in Edinburgh, Um hmm founded Thesis Bootcamp uh, and she let Liam and I come along for the ride and so uh, Mm -hmm. that was a um, intensive for late stage uh, doctoral candidates and uh, we won a prize for it. It was a real uh, really groundbreaking really successful program and so one of the things that we sometimes say about this book is that we finally wrote it all down Uh, this is Thesis Bootcamp in a book.
1: Yeah and Yes, Dr. Freestone is the third author and isn't here with us today. But so how did you meet her?
0: Well, um, uh, Peter and I were uh, working together at the Melbourne School of Graduate Research, which was the part of the University of Melbourne um, that primarily looks after uh, PhD and masters by research students. And we worked in um, the area that did a lot of program development um, and uh, yeah, like skills training programs and things like run a lot of workshops on all kinds of things to do with completing a PhD in life after a PhD. Um, And uh, the way that particular program that um, Catherine mentioned, uh, Thesis Bootcamp, came about was that Peter and I uh, went to this uh, workshop that was part of the Melbourne Emerging Writers Festival um, called Down the Rabbit Hole where uh, a group of people working on... A range of different genres uh, of writing would would have a weekend to kind of create these really big amounts of new content um, and be supported to do that. Um, And then Peter got thinking about, well, how would this work uh, for uh, PhD students? uh, And sort of looked around and found that, particularly in the United States, this is found to be a kind of a best practice approach to helping. Uh, research candidates complete a degree is to offer some kind of intensive writing program and so kind of so she spearheaded the thesis boot camp from there um and then like Catherine said she and I joined in um with this and we've all kind of been talking and working and conversing together ever since then.
1: And you decided to Write it all down, sort of encapsulated in the book. And I know in the book you say there there are a number of books out there to help graduate students get through grad school. But this final year, when you have to write your thesis, and the U.S. we often call it the dissertation, that's kind of where a lot of students feel like they're just left floundering. And that's really where this book comes in to talk about that final year when you're not on campus all the time, you're not working with your cohort, you're just meant to sit down and write and Panic kind of sets in.
2: We often say that writing is something that you're expected to do alone and things like Thesis Bootcamp and other um, programs that we, the three of us, set up uh, in our time at Melbourne like Shut Up and Write, which is uh, just people coming together for um, a few uh, 25-minute writing blocks uh, on a Wednesday morning in a cafe back when we were able to do that on campus and now we're running them online. All these things where you bring people together and they get to write together, they start to see that these things that are challenging to them, they're not failures of their own. They're not things they need to be ashamed of or pretend don't happen. Everybody uh, has challenges with managing time, managing motivation, um, thinking about how to explain really complex, absolutely original new material um, at the very cutting edge of what we as human beings know, um, that's hard for everybody. Uh, and when you do it in a community, whether that's a community that you of other people who you've read about or a community of people you're working alongside, then it feels easier because the thing that's hard is truly the hard work of research.
0: Yeah. I would absolutely agree with that, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We kind of um, found that yeah, there's lots of stuff that's been written about how to start a PhD, how to um, put together a good literature review that covers all the scholars in your field, how to take uh, good notes, how to build a relationship with a, an advisor, all of that, all of that good stuff. Um, but almost nothing about that final six to 12 months where you're just tearing your hair out and you're just like, oh my God, how am I? I've been working so hard for so long. How is this? I still don't have the big book that I'm supposed to hand in. How is this ever going to happen? Um, and yeah I mean it's curious I think partly this comes as a result too of this assumption that um, if you if you are in the final year of a PhD well you kind of know what you're doing by now so it's just a matter of kind of getting it done like you've kind of built the skills you've done the research all the data collection so now it's just a matter of Kind of, you know, wrapping it up, and and it's just it's just not true. Like it's just nowhere near as simple as that. Um, and one of the things we do talk about in the book is this idea of uh, writing as performance, um, which is uh, a cue that we took from our our colleagues. Um, Uh, Pat Thompson in particular, about this idea that you can spend years working on a topic, thinking about it, researching it, like Catherine says, wrestling with this really difficult material. Um, But it's a different thing to actually then writing it, because that's the moment when you have to kind of deliver, you've got to deliver something on all the talk. And that can be terrifying. That can be really, um, really challenging when it's when so much expectation has built up about what this thing is going to be and what this what this uh, represents about myself as a person. I've told everyone I'm doing a doctorate. I've been to conferences, talked to peers. Now I've got to make the thing happen. Oh, my God. Um, and so there's a lot of support that is needed at that point in the process. And um, this is where we thought we had something to add because we kept having the same conversations with people at this point. Um, so yeah. So so many of the same conversations,
2: and what I think is really interesting is exactly what Liam is saying. Students often experience it as a shift from being a student to being a scholar, from being a somebody who's just starting out or feeling like perhaps they, um, they're learning still, there's still so much more to read, there's still so much more to learn, uh, and then they realise, oh, no, actually, I'm the expert now. I've got to write. I've got to be out there telling my story. Um, and that's a shift in identity.
0: Yes. Uh, yes, indeed. Um, uh, yeah, there, there is. Um, and, yeah, the, the identity thing is, is completely bound up um in all of this i mean it's 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 uh, yeah it kind of how do i explain this writing. one of the things we talk about a lot in the book is how, how writing is part of an identity it is part of you demonstrating that you are um part of your uh you are part of your peers and you actually are qualified um it's a it's a it's a very difficult shift to make, particularly if it does come without uh, some form of rigorous institutional support. We have found,
1: and you you talk about another part of what plays into this. By the student, by the time the student gets to the final year, their identity is really wrapped up in them as a scholar, and they they aren't really separating themselves out from from the thesis or the dissertation. They have this expectation that it's going to define them in some way. And you, you, you have a section where you talk about myths Mm -hmm. and then you really want to unpack these myths that people have brought to it to sort of free them from the idea that this is their magnum opus or that it will change or heal the world or that, um, it needs to be perfect. Can you talk a bit about freeing people from these myths so that when they sit down to write, they can embrace their humanness? It's it's going to be the best they can do. It's not going to be the best thing ever.
0: Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yes, that's right. And, and uh, it's, a, it's a very easy conceptual trap to fall into is the idea that, um, that this project that i'm working on which is far and away the biggest thing i've ever done is the 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 singular monument to scholarship and therefore um it has to be perfect it has to it has to change completely the field that i'm working in and it's such a such an enormous aspiration um that uh really is not necessary i mean at the end of the day the thesis has to pass your dissertation has to the examiners it has to be something that's recognized as uh uh allowing you to say that you are um a peer in your field and um yeah we talk in the book about this and about how Uh, Yeah, separating yourself from your, from your work in a way. Um, You, we, I think we say a few times in there, you are not your thesis. Like a thesis is a, is a a dissertation is a thing that you're working on. It's a piece of work you'll develop. You'll, Complete and you will hand in, uh, but it is not who you are, um, and it's uh, it's a stepping stone to to a larger conversation. In,
2: in fact, there's quite a lot of really interesting research. Um, perhaps my favourite is by Mullins and Kylie, um, called "It's a PhD, Not a Nobel Prize," where they interviewed a whole load of experienced examiners about what they're looking for in a good thesis, um, and. Examiners are not looking for perfect work. Um, I think in the US, this, these people are sometimes called your committee. They're not looking for your magnum opus. That comes later. That's, that's you know many years down the track of your uh, researcher career. Um, what they're looking for is a PhD. Uh, and one of the things that we often tell people to do um, is actually just go and look at some other successful theses in your department that have passed. And the number of people who come back and go, you know what really surprises me they're not actually that good like they're they're a thesis, they're not a book they're not a you know the best work by the top scholars in the field who've been publishing for decades. It's kind of close to something that I might be able to do.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's right. It's- I
1: appreciated yeah that you put that in because I you earlier in the book you define sort of like three kind of archetypal grad student personalities and I was reading those and I really I saw myself in one of them. It was the person who just can amass a huge amount of primary research and. If you didn't give them a deadline they would just stay in the archive forever getting more raw data and i was like that's me i loved doing all my research trips i loved talking about all of the diaries that i was reading and the things that they said but i did see that when you were you were talking about people's strengths and weaknesses you were saying it is a strength to be able to do a lot of um research but it's a weakness as well. If you start drowning in it, you can't figure out what your argument is or how you're going to synthesize it. And you certainly have so much you don't want to leave any of it out. So how are you going to distill it into something that is done? And, yes, when they told me what a finished one looked like, I was really surprised. It was much smaller than I expected. <laughs>
0: yeah. Indeed. Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, those those types of um, – um, those, those kind of summaries of – um of uh research candidates are based on um i mean they no one is exactly like any of them but they're kind of amalgamated archetypes of sort of people that we found we kept meeting and we kept talking to and we kept um uh trying to help um see sort of how to how to sort of unstick themselves uh, in that way. And the kind of person that you're talking about, like we, we would have um, a lot of these workshops where someone would show up and say exactly what you're saying. I've got so much data, I've got so much research. Oh, my gosh, what do I do with it? How do I make this work? Um, and and partly sometimes it can be because, a, because an advisor or a senior colleague or a supervisor has said, um, you're not ready yet just – get some more data, and so they do that for years and years, and that what they have found useful is someone saying to them, you've got an enormous amount of information, just give it a go. Like, just write the thing. Just write what you know. Just see what you can get down in a few pages. And that can sometimes be like a floodgate opening, um, and people really can surprise themselves. Um, but it's, uh, it's uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an easy dilemma to find yourself having um particularly if you're so engaged in the in the material. And
2: that that waiting to write I think is really um, something that we see over and over again, whether it's because people feel that they're not ready, uh, that they don't have uh, sufficient methodological or theological, uh, theoretical understanding, that they don't have uh, enough data, that they need to do uh, what we call in the book just one more article syndrome, you know, that they just need to read just a little bit more and if they just read a little bit more, perhaps then they would be allowed to start writing Um, And by your third year, which is is in the um, Australian-UK sort of system, that's the year when you should be writing your final year, whatever year that might be, by that time that it's your final six to 12 months, whether or not you feel ready anymore is no longer relevant. Probably what's relevant is that you should be starting to write and that if you don't know what you think, partly you'll find it by writing um, and that therefore um, just write. Just start writing um is hugely powerful um and revelationary and gives people knowledge about what they do know what they don't know, how ready they are, how far they have come uh how much they have to give to the world of scholarship it's it's kind of magical
0: yeah indeed and and the the what i find, i'm i'm constantly amazed is um even now, things like the, the the one more article syndrome or indeed the imposter syndrome where you feel, oh, I got in by mistake, I'm actually not good enough to be doing this and one day I'm gonna be found out and they're gonna kick me out of my program is that um it's such a widespread, such a ubiquitous phenomenon and yet when People, when you discuss it um, with someone completing a PhD, the response is often, "Oh, I thought it was just me." It's like, no, 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 no. Like lots of people feel this. Lots of people have this experience. Um, and similarly, you know, with the with the the process of writing writing it all down after you've done heaps of research, very easy to put off and think, "Oh, I'm not there yet. I'm not. I'm not kind of quite ready." And um, we've found that when we discuss this with people in workshops, and we kind of lay this out in a sort of introductory kind of discussion, um, that most of the audience is kind of nodding furiously, like, "Oh yeah, that's me," you know. Yeah, I've, I just, I know I should write, but I just think, "Oh, just one more article," and of course that opens up five new um, avenues to, to chase down. Uh, that's definitely me, and it's like, "Yeah, that's everyone." But so much of this is just not really spoken about. It's just a, it's a kind of implicit, inbuilt assumption um that this is this is a this, this is problematic way of going about things is just me and I've got to kind of work it out on my system
2: and in fact we're talking I mean we're talking about our experience of working with other candidates but of course this is precisely the experiences we had ourselves I remember my supervisor telling me it's time to stop reading Catherine. it's start to, time to start writing and I was I was horrified I was shocked horrified and hurt um, and i was like wow that's a lot of really strong emotions to have about this particular piece of advice um, and so when i started giving that advice to other people you know it comes with the awareness that it does have big emotions involved um, but, yes, so so if you have really weirdly outsized emotions about being told it's time to just get down and write, uh, you're not alone in that either. That's absolutely uh, our
0: personal experiences too. Oh, yeah, indeed. Yeah, I mean, it was, and I got into the dynamic of my supervisor, that slightly troublesome thing where, um, where they, they might say something similar and you'd go, oh, yeah, just give me another week, you know, just another week. And they say, no, really, really, now you've got to, I want to see this chapter. Oh, okay, just hang on and kind of bomb them off a bit, you know, and it's, um, it's yeah, it's insidious.
1: I remember feeling a bit of umbrage um, mm. when they told me that I, I should stop reading and start writing. I, I have a huge to-do list of things to read. I can't stop now, you know, and I was, uh, I was living on an island at the time that I was writing, and books had to come over from the interlibrary loan on the ferry. And so um, I think my advisor just sort of reached a compromise with me where he said, you know, go ahead and ask for all the books you want, read all the books you want. We don't wanna hear about them and you still have to get your written work turned in on time. So it was almost like you can read that stuff now as a hobby, but you've read enough um, to go ahead and start writing. But I remember thinking, I was gonna have this certain feeling of confidence. Like I know my stuff and that's when I'll start writing. And and you tell us in chapter nine, writing is where you work it out. Uh, and that not writing is a far riskier strategy. And when I read that, I, I remember when I was reading it, you know, your book, I thought, oh, I wish someone had told me that. And then I took a step back and thought, I wonder how many times they told me that. And I didn't believe them. Yeah
0: this is true and and we often say this to people in these workshops or when we're talking particularly to um late candidature um students about the need to look you know enough you know so much just give it a go just just try and write the thing down and we say that we know like we recognize that this comes with an implicit sense of risk um and that it's almost like we're standing at the bottom of the cliff and you're at the top and we're saying come on just jump you'll be all right um and this feeling of no 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 but i can't um and like we we know that we get that and we see that um but uh at the same time yeah the longer this is delayed the harder it can be and that um it can often be quite liberating as well and and exactly like you were saying about telling people earlier we hear this all the time i mean i i catherine's probably heard similar things i hear this a lot where People say to us, oh, I wish someone had sort of told me this in first year, second year, then I could have set up better habits and this and that. Um, but our feeling is that, like, if we did say that to people back then, it would be like, yeah, I'll get to that. I've got heaps of time. Like, this is not something I need to do right now. Whereas in the last six months, they're like, I'll do anything. Just tell me, what's the thing? How do I get this done? In going. fact,
2: we did tell them because Liam and I used to run orientation stuff, and I would often uh, flag this stuff before people even got started and nobody believed me. Uh, and then they'd complain that I didn't tell them ahead of time uh, when I'd be seeing them in their final year. Um, I think you need to be in the right place to need to know. Um, and that's one another reason why these books that, you know, sort of suggest if you set yourself up well on your doctoral journey, um, then by the end, it'll all just make sense but you're moving into a different phase. Um, And so what you need and what you know you don't know um, and what challenges you're facing are likely to be different. So it's really important that people um, are able to access. Advice, whether that's from an advisor uh, or from a book or from the many blogs on the internet um, that we, we we often read and write ourselves, you know, th- there's places out there where this information is being discussed um, and really encouraging people to get out there and find that information.
1: And that's a really helpful way that the book is set up. It does take into account that grad students have a hard time really accepting the advice that it's, it's time to start writing. You, you do know enough. It, it doesn't, the advice we're getting doesn't match our interior world at that moment. Our interior world at that moment is saying, you're just starting to really get a handle on what you're learning. So now is the time to read more and research more. And it's not, it's time to, to start writing and start figuring out, what this is gonna look like when it takes shape on paper. And so you you offered sort of two ways to use the PhD survival guide. One is that you can use it sort of chapter to chapter. And the other is you can use the index and you can sort of troubleshoot that way into, and to consider this book as a, as a toolkit. Can you talk about it as a toolkit?
0: Um, yeah, sure. So, I mean, we. Um, we broke the book into um, into four but really three broad sections um, and one of them is uh, about the project itself that you're working on at a sort of higher level how to think about what you need to, to do between now and and um, and getting the, the the work finished submitted assessed um, the second part is more about the person who's actually doing this thing Um breaking down some of these myths, working with the supervisor in a healthy way and uh, really a, and really being aware of self-care through all this as well and acknowledging that it is very difficult. And then the third section um, is really about the, the text, uh, the text itself, uh, how to get into useful writing habits, how to break down the writing and how to think of it not as this overwhelming, um, terrifying task. And so in that sense, um it's uh, when we say toolkit I guess it's we kind of expect that people will have different needs at different points of the final six months so this might not be the kind of thing that I'd pick up and just go through cover to cover in a in, in, in a week or so but um, we use lots of subheadings and shorter chapters so hopefully people could pick it up and say, well, yeah, this is the thing I'm at at the moment. This is the, I'm just feeling totally bogged down and lost with this particular chapter. I've been looking at it for a year. I don't know what the argument is about anymore. Um, how can this help me? Or perhaps on another day, a person is thinking to themselves, I'm just really wanting to understand better. Um, uh, How am how am how am I able to uh, work with the supervisor in a way that kind of um, allows me to get what I need out of that um, out of that arrangement and uh, understand a bit better why they're saying the things the perplexing things that they are? So uh, that's yeah, that's how I would probably. If if you actually see
2: the book. What you'll and hold it in your hand. One of the things that you notice is how tiny the book is. You know, it's it it really is a handbook, it could fit in a pocket. Um, And so we really saw it as the kind of thing that you might slip into your pocket as you're heading out into uh, that final adventure of finishing off the dissertation. Um, and so, you know, really, it's, it's, it's very, it really is small bite sized pieces, um, a little thing that you can just slide into your bag, it won't add a lot of weight to your journey. Um, but it might give you just the exact tool you need, um, like a Swiss Army knife, you know, just exactly the thing you need to unlock the next stage of that journey.
1: And you provide a bibliography at the end of each section as well. So while well, the chapters are very succinct and they're really, they really just get to the heart of what 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 you need to say, and so it makes it really palatable for the person who's in the middle of a problem, you know, who's thinking, just tell me what I need to know. That is exactly what you do, and then you provide a bibliography so that if they want to read more about it. Um, they can, or they can go on to another chapter, which will be in another bite size, and they can just get right to what they need to know about that as well. When you get towards the end of the book, chapter uh, section four is about finishing the PhD. It's really about crossing that finish line. And one of the really important questions you ask for chapter 13 is, do you actually want to finish the PhD? A lot of people get to a point because of emotional fatigue, financial issues, um, intellectual fatigue, where they start questioning, do I really want to finish? And that's a normal question to pop up at any stage in the PhD. And it, it's one that you encourage people to go ahead and evaluate. Can you talk a bit about that evaluation process? In fact, it's quite, it's very
2: common for people uh, not to finish PhDs. Um, Something between a third and a quarter of people might decide uh, during their candidature that um, this is not actually what they want to be doing right now, or uh, this is not actually, it's not worth it for them to go all the way through to the end of the PhD. So like, it's very, very, very normal. Um, But it's also therefore not a thing for you to be worried about because everybody should ask the question, is this actually, now I know what it is. Nobody knows what a PhD is like before you start one. Now I know what's actually going on. Now I have a really realistic sense of the state of the academic job market. Now I um, see what it is that it will take to finish. Is that the best use of my time? Um, and it's amazing how many people are shocked to be kind of encouraged to think about it. Because if you decide, yes, actually, this is the right use of my time. This is what I want to do. Um, then the fact that, you know, other things maybe uh, that sometimes it's difficult, that sometimes uh, there are other opportunities that you're turning down uh, because you can't do everything and, and, and the PhD is taking up so much time and energy and brain space. That's fine. That's the choice you've made. Um, but don't do it because you are, you know, were taught that you should always finish what you started or because you're afraid or anything like that, like those are bad reasons uh, to finish a PhD. Finish a PhD because you want to. Uh, finish a PhD because you've got something to write that you want to tell people um, and that you want to say that. that. Those are good reasons to finish.
0: Yeah, I I absolutely agree. And I think even, and it's interesting because it seems that a lot of, like even the conversation about that tends to happen in these, kind of um, semi-external spaces, like the sorts of conversations that we would have with students in workshops. So we're very clear with saying to people that, look, we're not your supervisor here, we're not your advisor, um, but that's that's good. That's a good thing for you because it means that, like, you know, we're just here to help. Tell us whatever you want. Tell You know, we've got a lot of experience. We can discuss any aspect of this journey that you want and that sometimes these conversations, when people are clearly um either really unhappy with what they're doing or they're just sort of um they just don't feel anything for it anymore or they might have you know they might have they might have their job already and um and their job is they love their job it's great and and finishing the PhD is a kind of like, meh, it'd be nice to have, but, you know, I don't really need to do it. So actually sitting down and having an honest conversation about what does that really look like then is one that they haven't had before, I suppose, because inside their department and their program, um, people are, it's just this, like, of course you'll finish, of course you'll throw everything at getting this done. Um, and it's, uh, and and uh, even, just, even just considering what that looks like, an alternative to that looks like is... Um, unthinkable for them Um, uh, so it's uh, it's yeah and it's 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 quite common often it's like oh I never thought of it that it wouldn't be the you know the end of my life if I didn't finish my PhD and like we were saying before if you're bound up your identity with your PhD and you think you know you are your PhD well the idea of not finishing it is just like what does that mean for me as a person? Um, you know, to remain, I think we talk about this a bit in, in the book, that all this language and terminology, like to have submitted and to have completed. You know, if I don't finish my PhD, I'm not a completed person. I'm not a whole person. Um, it's really unhelpful. It's really, and, and it, it just it happens so subtly, I think, um, over years. And, and I years. think
2: that you've just touched on something really important there, Liam, which is that you are not your thesis. You're not your research. You are a whole, amazing, brilliant, interesting, brave, persistent person who is also doing research and who may also write a thesis um, and submit it. Um, And that's, those are not the same things. Those are not that they aren't the same, Though they it might be part of your identity. It's really important that it isn't your identity.
0: Mm. Yeah, indeed.
1: And one of the examples you gave in that section of the book was a woman who was faced with some really important life decisions. Her grandmother was ill. She was living in a different country than her grandmother. And while she tried to take a leave of absence, it did not work. And she ended up separating from her PhD mm-hmm. program just leaving it. One of the things I appreciated about that example was while she was making the right decision for her and um, the right decision for that, having that time with her grandmother that she would never uh, reclaim it, there wasn't another opportunity for it. There was a later opportunity for the PhD, which was not on her mind when she left. Mm -hmm. But later as life went on, she realized there was an opportunity to go do her PhD somewhere else. Can you talk about how sometimes in grad school we think if we've we've left our phd program one we often frame that in our own minds as a form of failure or as a form of permanence like i've quit and i can never go back
0: yeah yeah well this is true and it's a it's a very um it's a very ubiquitous dynamic is to have this sense that if you well exactly like you say if I left so if I did a PhD and I didn't get an academic job but I got a job working um in the private sector or for the government or something like that like oh I've betrayed myself and I've let the team down and you know how how kind of how kind of wrong-headed I guess that is because um some of the smartest and indeed happiest people I know have who have PhDs do not work in academia so First of all, that's fine. Um, but yeah, there's, there are lots of opportunities to to, um, to to reclaim some of these these spaces later on. This idea that once you leave, you can never go back. I think is. Um I think is, uh, there's a lot of evidence that that's not true. Um, and I remember going to a talk um, from someone uh, who worked in uh, molecular biology uh, who was just talking about an academic career in, in Melbourne a number of years ago, um, and she's brilliant and she um, has won all kinds of awards, internationally renowned as a scientist, and she was talking about how um, when she was at the point of completing a PhD, what she really wanted to do was become a novelist. She wanted to to um, write books and uh, write fiction and build an audience that way. Um, and she was sort of torn between should I do this or should I become a scientist and go all in on that career? Um, and she she decided to become a scientist, but kind of said to herself, "Well, you know, maybe I can go back and 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 uh, do the do the novel thing later on um, as an option." And what she actually realized later was. Um, Whilst she could go back and become a novelist, she kind of didn't really didn't really feel the need to in the same way because when you make that choice between these two different paths and you actually follow one down, uh, your life changes, your mind changes, your experiences shape you. And so the idea of kind of retracing your steps and trying something else, it just a few years down the track will look very different and it will feel very different. So um, not having done that thing is not something that a person ends up regretting they just um are kind of more able to embrace what new opportunities come from from this more divergent path that they've taken
2: i think also it's it's um we we get in a kind of school to grad school to you know more grad school pipeline um and and people feel that any step away um of more than, you know, perhaps a few months, perhaps a gap year, um, is is going to jeopardise their ability to uh, research. But, you know, universities, some people absolutely start at five and finish at 25, um, but it's much, much more common uh, and increasingly common for people to be blending their um, work, professional experience and their um and their research to return to do doctoral, um, doctorates, you know, professional doctorates and all sorts of other things. You know, this, this is not, it's not a, I'm, I'm on a train and I must never get off. It's absolutely uh, a richer and, um, more and more common journey, uh, to be, to be taking time for work, taking time for family, uh, and then returning to research.
1: And for, for listeners, you have a copy of the book. This These questions are are framed for you in Chapter 13, and you can find them more specifically on pages 188 through 189. If you're in a place in your program where you're really weighing out your options and trying to f- decide if this year of writing is right for you, um, it'll, it'll help lay some of that out for you to really think about. Um, I want to make sure we have time to talk about Chapter 14, which is for people who do finish their PhD there can be a feeling, an expectation for us that we're going to be happier than we've ever been, um, especially if we've tied identity into becoming Dr. Whoever. Um, and in this chapter, you talk about, yes, there's a lot of positives in finishing, but to let us know that the letdown is also normal too because I did not know that was going to happen to me and I will out myself. I was both happy and sad after I finished and I was not expecting that the grief part.
2: Absolutely. Um, we call the chapter 14 the relief and grief of finishing a PhD. Um, often the happiness is, some of it is, oh, wow, I did this thing and I actually su- succeeded. But a lot of it is relief. It's exhausting. People are often really tired. Um, I often now tell people if you're planning to take um, some holiday after you've finished, don't actually plan to go anywhere fancy, just plan to sleep. Uh, for a few days and then and then plan your sort of celebration holiday a little bit later. Um, but also for a lot of us, um, and this was true for me, I finished my my PhD exactly on time. I handed in, I got my my uh, award and then my library access got cut off. Um, <laughs> and I wasn't I was about to move countries so I wasn't teaching that semester. and I went hang on, my whole access to university life, to research, to these people who, you know, I had friends, I had colleagues who I was really, who I really liked. Um, I was about to move countries, which is a very common thing to do at the end of, of a PhD for various reasons. Suddenly I went, there's a lot of things I've just lost um, that a PhD gave me Um things around who I am, things around the people I have access to, and things around the knowledge and cultural life that I have access to. And those things are going. Um, And so, you know, giving yourself a moment to acknowledge those, uh, to say goodbye, um, and to to think about what things, you know, might be bittersweet, um, even if you're off on a fantastic new adventure. um, It's always sad to leave some things behind. Um, and so, really, you know, finding time to acknowledge and honour that is really important.
0: Yeah, completely. And 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 it's and it's interesting. Yeah, I, I totally I resonate with that a lot. What you were saying about this, yeah, getting your library access cut off and things like that, because. It's, it's actually one of the few times probably in your life where there is such a massive stark transition between one day I'm doing this thing that's absolutely all-consuming and then, like, a week later I'm not. Um, and that took me ages to get over. Like, I found that I was, um, you know, a month or two after submitting – uh, a PhD was finding myself still, you know, having those first thoughts, waking up in the morning, going, "All right, today, what have I got to do? I've got to edit chapter three, and I've got to do it." And I go, "Oh, actually, no, I don't do any of that. That's all done. Oh, okay. Um, hmm, what now?" <laughs> um, so, yeah, it is, it's, it's, it's a, it is a major transition. And
2: you have to learn how to do things like read for pleasure um, and sit down in the in the book, we talk about it feeling like the, the demon monkey of um, PhD guilt, that sort of feeling that there's always something lurking behind you, you wake up in the morning, what have I got to do now? And there's always something that you do have to do. And then when the thesis is done, that goes away. And you have all of this time and thought that you could fill with anything you liked. Um, and so it can be really um, also important to think, for well, what what positive things will I be doing? Uh, I read a lot of Booker Prize winning novels. I'm English literature is my PhD. Um, I had not read any fiction for fun for years. Uh, and so I learned to read fiction for fun again, which was great.
1: I, I took note of that part of the book as well, where you said you talked about reading for fun, because after I finished my PhD, I took a job at a library and when they said to me, well, why do you want this job? And I said, and this is embarrassing. I said, I want to know what real people read. I don't remember. And so I, I had the job at the library and I was just very excited to see what, what was on the waiting list. I was on an Island. And so the bestsellers we, we took names and everybody was on a wait list for that. And I was very excited about what was in the, um, what was most in circulation. And, you know, when people would return things um, when we worked there and I probably shouldn't say this either, we had first dibs on new things that came in. so if it was a DVD or it was a book or if it was a magazine and I had this large tote bag and when new things came in, I mean, I would just fill it up. And they'd be like, Christina, are you really going to read all that? And I was like, yes, tonight. I was just, I was so excited to, um, find out what popular culture was, Um, you know, when people would say, oh, you don't want that, that came out four years ago. And I'd be like, new to me, never heard of it. Um, Because my part of my undergraduate interest was literature and creative writing. and, And when I did my advanced degrees in history, I really didn't get to um, read much creative uh, fiction or even creative nonfiction. So when I saw that part of the book where you're talking about you can have hobbies again and you can delve into popular novels, I thought, well, I took that quite seriously. Like I devoted a good couple of years at the library to just tell me what I haven't known, catch me up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if it's and, – and if you can and you've got the space to, to kind of do that, it's, it's, it is really – it's, it's really worth doing. Like, I, I know sometimes people will finish a PhD and have to go straight into a job or straight into something else. Um, and there's not a lot of space in between. But I, I always say to people, if you can even take, like, even you give yourself a couple of weeks, that would be amazing. Even one week. Like, I've, and I, and I totally, I'm, I'm one of those people who like gives advice about this stuff. But I myself, kind of did it the hard way and didn't actually kind of follow my my own advice um like the time straight after finishing my phd i went straight into the job hunting and stressing about where the you know what i'm going to do for the next 12 months and all that kind of stuff and putting together like temporary contract teaching jobs and all that and i kind of look back on that time now I'm like, geez, I should have just enjoyed it. I should have just chilled out a bit, not even that long, and just kind of n- not straight away worry about, like, the next thing I've got to do, but actually just kind of just chilled out and enjoyed the time a bit more. And I, I totally say that to everyone now, but I say that knowing that, like, I say that now that I'm I'm kind of, I'm, I'm more established in a career and I've got a job and I feel a bit more kind of secure in that way. But at the time I was like, no, 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 I've got ai have got to, polish my cv or that sort of thing or quick straight into the article papers published or yeah so um yeah if you can if you can actually just kind of yeah take take the time to to enjoy the fact that this enormous all-consuming thing is not there anymore then then do it like please do it
1: one thing I'd like to ask all my guests is what they hope this episode will spark. So Catherine, can we start with you?
2: I hope this episode sparks a feeling that you're not alone, um, that there are thousands of people uh, around the world who are experiencing the same highs, lows, challenges, uh rewards excitement um as you are uh, and that you'll reach out that you'll find your community whether that's online or um closer to where you are and that you'll know that there are people you can ask for help uh and that you'll get help the academic community in this space is so generous so incredibly generous uh so definitely reach out uh and be with others as you go through this thing. That is, nonetheless, a journey only you can take. Your unique voice, your unique thesis, your unique contribution.
1: Thank you, and Liam. What do you hope this episode sparks?
0: Um, yeah, I think I think uh, following on from that trying to, I, I, I hope that people understand that there is this this um, interesting tension between the project that you're working on is unique, um, the, your, your, the research you've conducted is unique, the way that you approach it is unique, only you can do this thing. Um, but at the same time, so many people not only are where you are right now, but have been in the past. So whatever challenges or um, problems you might be facing, uh, people have been there, people can help um, problems have solutions um so indeed like Catherine said reach out talk to people um it's it's um vanishingly uh, unlikely that a, a challenge that you're facing no one has faced before um so it's it's uh whatever it is these people can help
1: I know that you're both pressed for time and I need to let you go. So I want to thank you both so much for being here today and talking to us about your PhD survival guide, planning, writing, and succeeding in your final year. It's part of the Insider Guides to Success in Academia. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on NewBooks Network. I hope you will please join us again.